Welcome into another episode of Running for the Roses. I'm Ryan Baffle Lucas, joined by Lucas Rohde here as we are less than a week until National Signing Day. Uh, Bulls start up this weekend. Uh, transfer portal is ablaze. December is an extremely busy month of college football, and we're here to break it all down. Lucas, how are you, my friend? I am doing very, very well. Um, you can hear, uh, I can't believe, is it next week or the week? Or no, the, yeah, next weekend is already Christmas, yep. um, which is kind of hard to believe. But yeah, it's the last couple weeks of college football. We haven't had a game played since the third, but it feels like um, feels like it's been busier than ever um, with uh, the condensed signing period and everything like that. So it's it's been a crazy time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, December. It's like the yeah championship weekend, the first weekend, and then it's just a sprint for recruiting. The portal opens the Monday after championship weekend. And then a dead period starts on December 19th, um, essentially on Monday and your signing day is Wednesday. And then you have a couple days off for some bowl practices. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a college football coach during this month you're, you're traveling to see recruits in home you're hosting visitors on the weekends and also trying to get your team ready for for bowl games and develop some of your younger roster i mean it's, it's just wild to me yeah especially if you're like either an assistant or you're a coach and both like for both of our teams where you're transitioning maybe from one team to another um your move like I, I can't imagine i very little sleep i'm imagining uh football coaches get this time of year yeah. so that's what they pay. That's what you pay them for. <laughs> uh, quick run of show here. Then we'll dive into our topics for this evening. Lucas and I will touch on the coaching hires to, 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 to kind of wrap up the, the coaching carousel. Jeff Brom going from Purdue to Louisville. And then Ryan Walters uh, getting a power five job. The former Illinois defensive coordinator takes the Purdue job. Lucas and I then touch on some signing day transfer portal stuff here. All the, all the happenings happening in the month of December. And then we're going to review um, all of the conferences, uh, the all of the major conferences here. We'll start with the Pac-12 this week. We'll maybe do one or two a week here leading into January. But um, what stood out to us, disappointment, surprises, uh, best coaching job uh, that was done in the league. We'll kind of do a, a, a review, a look back here as, as we begin to look back on the college football season of 2022, starting with the Pac-12 uh, tonight. But Lucas, first, uh, we start the podcast on a bit of a uh, a bit of a somber note here. Uh, Mike Leach, Mississippi State head football coach, uh, passed away earlier this week at the age of sixty one. Um, Mike Leach suffered essentially what was described as a massive heart attack and passed away uh, a few days later. His family released uh, the following statement. Mike was a giving and attentive husband, father, and grandfather. He was able to participate in organ donation at UMMC as a final act of charity. We are supported and uplifted by the outpouring of love and prayers from family, friends, Mississippi State University, the hospital staff, and football fans around the world. Thank you for sharing in the joy of our beloved husband and father's life. Uh, Lucas, truly one of the innovators of our sport, one of the best offensive minds in our sport, former offensive coordinator at Oklahoma, head coach of Texas Tech, head coach of Washington State and of Mississippi State. One everywhere he went, one of the the, the quirkiest characters of college football, um, truly a good person and uh, gone too soon. So Mike Leach passing away at the age of, uh, of 61. 
Yeah, it was, uh, that was tough because it happened all suddenly. And, you know, we heard reports. I know, um, I think he had, I, I, I don't know if it's accurate, but I believe he got like pneumonia or got very sick, like with a month left in the season, just never really fully recovered. And that may or may not have uh, contributed to what happened uh, this past week. But no, like you mentioned, like one of the, the true characters, I think one of the things that was so refreshing about Mike Leach was, you know, I think we have this stereotype of football coaches like Saban and Dabo where it's 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 all business. Like we're just on to the next opponent. We don't really have time to enjoy it. Like I just felt like Mike Leach didn't take himself that seriously. And it actually felt like a guy who enjoyed uh, actually what he did. And he just was himself. Um, he, he didn't feel like he had to be the stereotypical, you know, football coach. And I think that's what made him, um, so revered among his contemporaries, but also among the media and also among fans like ourselves. Like you mentioned that the places where he, uh, he coached at, and I think he only had three losing seasons in 21 years, places where he coached at are not the easiest places to win in the world either. I think, you know, Wazoo... I think you could make an argument that that might be the worst. Most people might consider that the worst job in the Pac-12. Um, Texas Tech certainly is not an easy job in the Big 12 and then Mississippi State um, for the last three years. And, you know, he was himself. He won it the way he wanted to, playing the air raid. And you, you mentioned, you know, he's, had, he's been such an impact on, on college football. But you look at, you know, high school football, especially in the state of Texas, like, Pretty much every high school there runs a version of the air raid offense. Now, Um, in college, you look at his coaching tree with Lincoln Riley, Sonny Dykes, um, Josh Heupel, Josh Heupel, Cliff Kingsbury, Kingsbury. who's now in the NFL. Um, You know, it goes on, and not just and those are guys who just coach for them, but there are plenty of other coaches who have you know been um, taking inspiration from him and so on and. You know, the air raid is a lot of what makes a lot of offenses at all at all levels. Um, so I don't think it can be understated that the impact that he had had. And, you know, it, it's going to be a, a big loss. I don't know if we'll ever have quite a quite a character um, like Leach. I mean, I, it, it was so enjoyable being able to just read all the different stories that so many writers, so many ex-coaches had about him. And they were all different. Like it yes. wasn't like they were just reciting the same one. Um, you know, he would pick up the phone in the middle of practice and just randomly get on a tangent with a guy for 40 minutes. And the reporter's hearing whistles in the background. And he's like, coach, are you at practice? And then he's just like, yeah, yeah, like, uh, whatever. Um, yeah. Or, and, and things like that. So a huge loss, you know, our thoughts and prayers out with you know, Mississippi State and obviously with the Leach family and all those that were impacted by it. But, yeah, a significant loss and one that I think will be felt um, for uh, for a long time. Yeah, Mississippi State announced uh, earlier in the week uh, the promotion of defensive coordinator Zach Arnett to the head coaching position. He gets a new, I believe, four-year deal. Um, all right, no easy way to segue from that, but we will move on and get into some uh, some new coaching hires. We speculated on the pod last week. Uh, Jeff Brom going home to Louisville made too much sense. Uh, he had maybe kind of capped out what he could do at Purdue coming a win away from the Rose Bowl. 
um, and he goes home to Louisville, where he where he has a you know a, a ton of a family of uh, familiarity and uh, a great reputation there. His family in that program. Uh, your your thoughts on uh, Louisville losing Scott Satterfield and then being able to bring home the uh, the prodigal son Jeff Brom. Yeah, it's one of those rare instances. And look, I I don't think Scott Setterfield's a bad coach. I think he's a pretty decent one, but I think this is one of the rare instances where you lose your head coach and you upgrade. Yeah. Um, we we all knew that they were going to go. He was going to be their number one target, and more than likely, he was going to take it this time. I think it was four years ago. The last time that job came open, they went after Brom, but he just didn't feel like it was right to leave Purdue after only being there for two seasons. Um. But I mean, it, it's. I think it's a it's a great pick by them. Obviously, you know this Brom. The thing is with Brom, if he has success there, he's probably never going to leave. Um, so you don't have to worry about him looking for bigger jobs. I thought he did a fantastic job at Purdue. Um, I remember that job before he took it over. They had won, I think, eleven games in four years. Um, hadn't been to a bowl game in about five seasons. All he did was take them to a bowl game their first two seasons. In these last two years, it was their first time they had consecutive winning seasons in about two decades. Um, so I, I, I don't think it, I can say it enough how good of a job he had did at Purdue. Um, he left. I think if you're a Purdue fan, you're just happy because he left that job in a much better state. And we'll get to you know them hiring Ryan Walters. I think that gave them the ability to make a move like that. But yeah, I think it's a slam dunk for for Louisville. He's a terrific offensive mind. Um, that program, it's not in, in terrible shape by any means. And I think with him, with the NIL that they have going, which apparently is running very, very smoothly at Louisville, they still are keeping hold of a pretty good recruiting class that's coming in. I don't think it's going to take very long for Brom to have immediate success um, in the ACC down there. And certainly, like we spoke last week about how with the ACC abolishing divisions going to the pod system, it's going to be easier in, in that conference, right? You, 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 you are no longer in the same division uh, with Clemson, right? You, Clemson no longer stands in your path to get to an ACC championship. So certainly um, I think that played a part into it. And, you know, it, it makes all the sense in the world, right? I, I think at some point um, comfort and, and family and things outside of football sometimes trump money, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. Purdue could have paid him whatever he wanted to stay, and I'm sure they, they, I'm sure they made offers. Hey, what do you want? Is it, is it, is it staff budget? Is it, is it, you know, analysts? Do you, do you need more resources? What can we do? He's, he's, and he said no. I mean, it's, it's about family. It's about going home. It's about, it's about uh, going back to a, a place where I want to help bring them up, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I think your first point was, was really good where it's a situation where you lose your head coach and you, you kind of upgrade. I mean, I think we can all agree that Jeff Brom has, I think, done more than Scott Satterfield. He played for a conference championship this year and Purdue seemed to be that program before Jeff Brom, a little bit like Illinois, where you just, you just hired a bunch of Mac coaches and they all failed. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, not since Joe Tiller, right. Where. They, they actually uh, sustained success. And Purdue tried to do something very different in the Big Ten. And I think that took guts, right? I mean, you look at Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan. They all kind of play the same way. Tough, physical, fullbacks, tight ends. Um, and Purdue said, let's try, to, let's try to zag when everyone else is zigging. Mm-hmm. And so 
he did a nice job with that. And and I, I listen, I think he kind of maxed out what Purdue was going to be. He, he went eight and four. He won the Big Ten West, um, and was a game away from playing in in the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone really thought they were going to get there. They were a heavy underdog against Michigan, um, and and you know certainly. I think he leaves Purdue in a better spot than um, than he than, than he got it in, right? Yeah, I think that's all you can ask for when you hire a head coach. Is even if they leave, as long as they leave it in a better spot than what it was before, it's it's a, it's a success. And I think, kind of just segueing into, I think for obviously Purdue's job opening was open, and I think that because they had elevated, that's the reason why you're able to bring maybe one of the best assistant coaches in all of college football and Ryan yep. Walters. Yeah, so Ryan Ryan Walters, we had speculated him at Colorado. Obviously, they go with Dion and Ryan Walters. Um, probably a gut punch for Illinois, right? I mean, you, you, you think that you're even able to keep this guy for another year. He was a Broyles Award finalist, one of the best defenses in the country last year. And a team in your division snags him. Um, I'll say this, very surprising hire for Purdue. Purdue is known as an offensive-minded job. They hire mm-hmm. offensive coaches. They want to score points. Not that Ryan Walters won't do that, but it was it was a bit of a um, it was a bit of a a different hire than I was expecting for Purdue. We threw around some names like Dan Mullen. Um, we threw around Sean Lewis, who had just accepted the OC job at at at, at Colorado. Um, you know, we th- we threw around. Uh, you know, guys like Jim Leonard, right? People from that region. Um, and they go and, and listen, I, I'm very high on Ryan Walters. I mean, I watched some of the um, press conference he had. I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff that Purdue posted. He, he seems like a guy that just gets it. very polished, speaks well, a lot of energy, young guy, African-American, like just, I think checks so many boxes for Purdue. I think he's going to be a, a big success there relative to their standards, think they'll compete for bowls year in and year out obviously it'll be interesting to see the staff he puts together um and who he chooses for the offensive coordinator i know that's that's the biggest hire right for a, a defensive minded coach is, is who's going to be your oc what kind of offense are you going to run i don't think purdue's going to go to the fullback tight end you know let's change what we did and and you know go backwards right i still think they will play um a bit of an RPO spread kind of offense, but yeah, I was surprised at the hire. I did not expect them to go Ryan Walters. I expected him to be in a different black and gold, you know, uniform combo at Colorado, but I, I think it's a nice hire for the Boilermakers. Yeah. And that's funny. You, you mentioned, you know, we talked about him with Colorado, very different intro press conferences uh, to their team, or I should say intro team meetings Yeah, uh, with Ryan Walters. Not only did he not tell guys to go enter the transfer portal, but he actually handed out a walk-on uh, scholarship, which was uh, really, really cool to see and a good way to uh, introduce yourself to get your team to rally behind you. And um, No, I, I agree with you. It was, it was completely surprising. I think for the, like, the fact you mentioned, he's a defensive guy, and their last really two successful head coaches were kind of offensive innovators and – um, and quarterback coaches, so it, it is going to matter who they who he does hire. But to me, if, if it's a guy who can coach, he can coach. It usually doesn't really matter, especially in college football now. It's much more of kind of a a good. You just need like a guy who can be a really good CEO. So it's 
not only what his X's and O's are, but does he connect with players? Can he win a locker room? Can he win a classroom when he's trying to recruit kids? Um, can he build up a staff and an infrastructure that is going to build uh, success, especially um, off the field with your recruiting department? So, um, no, he was going. It was a matter of when, not if, uh, he got a head coaching job. And look, he's going to be able to hire good assistants. That's just the fact of life now in the Big Ten. You're probably going to have an assistant pool bigger than just about anybody else in the country, no matter what school you are. I mean, crap, Indiana will probably be able to pay as much as, you know, Miami or Florida State can pay for assistance because of the amount of money that they're making. Um, so it will be an intriguing, intriguing fit. But like you said, too, I think if Purdue's smart, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they will keep with what has been working and what their identity really, really has been. And that's been kind of being a spread offense, not really trying to copycat what everyone else in the division is doing. Um, but we'll see. And if you can mix that with the type of defenses that Ryan Walters has put up the last couple of years at Illinois, um, I think you're going to have, I think you're going to be very, very happy with the results. I think the most impressive thing about what Walters did at Illinois is it was the much like, that defense in 2022, it was the majority of the players he inherited. Yeah. I mean, like, they had – I think they had a really stud freshman, like, defensive lineman. But, like, besides that, like, Devin Witherspoon, Sidney Brown, mm-hmm. like, those guys were guys that he inherited off of a really bad Illinois team. And in two years, he turned them into statistically, like, a top three or four defense. And unlike the Michigans and the Georgias, like, they don't have the five stars. They really no. didn't. And he developed Devin Witherspoon into probably a first-round pick, and then Sidney Brown and Quan Martin also probably getting drafted. So certainly development, and and every program has to develop players, especially at a place like Purdue. You're just you're just not going to get the a lot of four and five stars um, every single year. Speaking of four and five stars, uh, signing day. We are recording this on a Thursday. It's signing day six days away. Um, the one thing that I just want to point out first of all is. I don't call it early signing day. I call it signing day. They effectively yeah. moved up signing day like six weeks um, because like 80-ish percent of high school players will sign in this in this period. Um, so signing day is uh, on Wednesday, the 21st of December. Quick rundown of the top 10 teams in the 24-7 sports team rankings. A lot of new faces, Lucas. I'll tell you what, real parody in college football that is coming with these – with the new players in college football. Alabama, nice to see a fresh face there. They are number one. Uh, Georgia, number two. Miami, number three. They actually just propelled ahead of Notre Dame and LSU. They picked up a five-star offensive tackle just a couple hours ago. LSU is at four. Notre Dame is at five. Ohio State, six. Texas is at seven. Oklahoma, eight. Tennessee, nine. Florida, ten. A couple other standouts among the top 25 Oregon at 12, USC at 14, A&M at 15, Arkansas 16, South Carolina 18, TCU 19, Michigan down at 20, Utah at 21, uh, Texas Tech having a nice class there, 22, Baylor 23, Iowa 25. Um, Lucas, when we talk about early signing day, um, there are so there's so much more that goes into it now than did maybe four or five years ago. NIL, you know, wink, wink. Um, we're seeing Miami put together a really, really good class despite going six and six and just looking dreadful on the field, both with the atmosphere in the stadium and the product on the actual football field. <laughs> um, 
I think it's interesting. I'll note Miami at three. I'll also note Oklahoma at eight. A uh, bit of a surprise. I mean, I think Oklahoma had obviously their worst year in a while um, at six and six. Brent Venables first, you know, first uh, full cycle for him, first full class for him. Um, and we're starting to see that, right? The first full class. We had so many coaches in the in the coaching carousel last year. And this is their first full class. Mario Cristobal at three, first full class. Brian Kelly, Notre Dame, four. Um, uh, Notre Dame at five with uh, a uh, – with um, a, Marcus Freeman. Marcus Freeman, thank you, in his first full class. Brent Venables at eight. Florida at ten with Billy Napier. Uh, Oregon at 12 with Dan Lanning's first full class and USC 14 with Lincoln Riley's full class. Um, when you look at the top 25, some of the same old, same old, some interesting new names. What are your kind of uh, takeaways here with less than a week out? Yeah. So like you mentioned, it, it, it not much changed from years past. One of the class I was going to mention was Oklahoma. I think especially coming off the year that they had, I mean, still showing that they still have the recruiting prowess. I mean, especially, too, with Lincoln Riley left, they still got one of the best quarterbacks uh, in the country, in Jackson Arnold, um, who I believe was the number one player in the state of Texas, um, to still jump on uh, jump on the train. And, yeah, you mentioned Miami. We talked about that was going to be their, their biggest asset in getting Cristobal, is that he is a magnificent recruiter. We saw it at Alabama when he was an assistant. We obviously saw it at Oregon. And still, Oregon is largely using the infrastructure that he built there to continue their success. Um, and with you know the amount of money that's getting pushed with Miami um, and the NIL deals that they're apparently throwing out, uh, not entirely shocking. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think and also Notre Dame. I was really interested to see with Marcus Freeman because kind of the same way they everyone said Marcus Freeman is just such an. Uh, an amazing recruiter in his own right. You look at, you know, Notre Dame recruited really well under Brian Kelly. They usually were either like a top 10 or top 15 class. Um, but the last couple of years, I think they were number seven last year with Marcus Freeman's first year on staff. Um, and before yesterday, they were number three um, until yeah. LSU in, in Miami passed them today. So I think it's really telling like how pivotal uh, hiring uh, a good coach like that can be. Um in 20, I mean, especially with Notre Dame, they have 26 guys committed. 22 of them are four or five stars, uh, or at least four stars. So um, I think a really good class for them. But also, like, you know, it also saddens me because you see Alabama and Georgia, and you know they are not going anywhere anytime soon um, with them. I think it's been – I know Texas A&M got it last year, but didn't you say, like, the previous four or five years, it's either been one of those two competing for the number one spot? Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to say, like, A&M's was the first team since Ohio State, like, under Urban Meyer to have the number one class besides Alabama uh, and Georgia. Those two teams are just on another level. I mean, they're, they're the two best programs right now in our sport, you know, year to year. Georgia, the reigning national champion. Alabama won it the year before that, like, um, what Kirby and Nick, and I think Kirby took a lot from Nick, right, in terms of his infrastructure and how he sets up his um, recruiting department. And certainly, like, those teams have the most resources. Like, we had talked about earlier in, in the year, like, I think in 2019 or 2020, Georgia spent the most money on recruiting by, like, over a million dollars more than, like, the second-place team, right? Like, they just um, – it, it helps when you have a lot of – of those kind of resources, but also helps when you're a damn good team. Like Georgia mm-hmm. hadn't lost a regular season game 
in like since the COVID year, basically, right? They went last year undefeated, lost in the SEC title game, won the national championship, and this year thirteen and zero. Tennessee at nine. I think like the you have three SEC East teams in the top ten, which is which is pretty nuts. Um, and you have two SEC West teams, LSU and Alabama. Obviously, Auburn um, with a, a new coach and Brian Harson wasn't a great recruiter during his tenure there. Ole Miss doesn't really seem like they necessarily care. Their class is at thirty three. They focus a lot more on the transfer portal. Ole Miss also only has twelve commits, seven of them four stars. Uh, Mississippi State is at 28 as well. Um, we're still going to see the SEC be the SEC. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it truly is. One team that I, I think is interesting as we kind of go around the rankings here, Michigan at 20. You know, Michigan, you see teams usually get a bump in recruiting the following year after like a breakthrough season, whether you're that's go to a bowl game for you or whether it's win nine or ten games and go to New Year's Six Bowl, whatever. You know, Michigan makes the playoff, beats Ohio State, but – Michigan just seems very content to like take their guys. Yep. Like they have six four star commits. Um, they seem very content to like, hey, we're going to develop the hell out of people. And we have won. Um, we've won the Big Ten the last two years. I think that's interesting. And right behind them at 21, Utah. Mm-hmm. Five four star commits. Utah has picked up some Stanford uh, decommits. I've seen both in the portal and from, and from the high school ranks. And, Kyle Whittingham like consistently recruits in that 20 to 25 range and then overperforms to like yeah. a top 15 team, which is, I think the makings of a really good coach. Yeah. I mean, anytime I know, I think it's, it's either uh 538 or maybe it's 24 seven. They usually have a chart that's usually each year and it shows how much successful people are versus their recruiting ranking. And usually yeah. Utah is almost always in like the, the upper right hand corner um they recruit usually at like a top 25 to 30 level however they're the last few years they've been like a top 10 to top 15 team just about every year and um, we mentioned their class number 22 i think it's it's always cool to see when programs do have success them then be able to emulate that further on the recruiting trail uh, and kind of reap the rewards of of their hard work and you mentioned michigan Cause it's not like every year. I mean, the last, I think four or five years under Harbaugh, they've had either top 10 or top 15 recruiting classes. And like you mentioned, I think they just trust their evaluations and who can blame them. The amount of guys that they've sent on both sides of the ball to the NFL. Um, They like who they like. And they also, they don't divvy too hard in the transfer portal either. Um, But I, it might be lower and maybe some people are like looking at that, especially in the big 10 being like, Hey, maybe we could catch them on that. Yeah, I'm not believing it until they uh, they they're the they're the cream of the crop right now. They basically have they have supplanted Ohio State, and until that gets turned on its head, I don't think um, we can question anything that Michigan's doing, which is a complete tailspin from where we were two years ago. The other thing that I I think is interesting is one of the the thoughts I had, and it's not really an original thought, but with with the advent of the transfer portal, are you going to see teams take less high school players, take fewer high school players? Because why would I take an 18-year-old kid when I could take a 21-year-old two-year starter at a Mac school, mm-hmm. right? Or an FCS All-American or a Division II All-American, right? So it, it's interesting. If you look at the commitments, the total commitments, right? Alabama, 25. Georgia, 23. Miami, 24. LSU, 25. Notre Dame, 26. Oklahoma, 23. Tennessee, 25. But then you look at some of the teams that are more, I think, portal teams. 
commitments, right? Texas A&M, 13 commitments. USC, 19 commitments. Florida State, 16 commitments. South Carolina, 18 commitments. Um, you know, North Carolina, 18 commitments. Michigan uh, State, only 13. Well, yeah, Michigan State's had a weird thing with their class. I don't know. I've, I, um, They've had several guys decommit. And, like, Michigan State, from what I understand, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but they – focused a lot on the South this year, like Florida, Georgia, and they got a lot of early commits. And then those commits are now going to like Auburn and, and Georgia or like whatever, like now that's kind of like the quote unquote bigger schools are looking at them. They're kind of wavering. I'm like, dang, Michigan state's got 13 commits. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting to see how some teams still want to build heavily and almost like take their losses from the portal and re put them into like their high school class. Like, all right, we lost, four kids to the portal we weren't expecting let's add four high school kids versus the programs that are no let's let's sign maybe 18 20 high school kids and we'll go get a dozen portal kids <laughs> no it's it's weird like it is a completely different roster construction than what we're used to and i think it really just depends on where maybe you're at as a program where you're at as a head coach like we saw speaking of michigan state i mean they were kind of transfer you a year ago um, they took in like 20 some transfers, you know, Kenneth Walker, obviously being uh, uh, a huge one. It but, was all... but did they pay the price this year for it? They may right? have because they know, had went, went, what 11 and two in 2021 and five and seven this year, six and six this year. right? Yeah. So. Uh, they're five and seven this year. So they didn't even make a bowl game for the second time in three years. I might add, um, but <laughs> um, Love you but, get a little jab in, <laughs> but uh, I think it just depends. I think they did that. I don't know if it was because they felt pressure to win right away. I think you see that with guys who, you know, they're on the hot seat. So to them, getting a transfer might be more of a sure thing than building for the future that they might not be a part of. Um, we saw, you know, Lincoln Riley last year. Obviously, they were kind of the epitome of transfer you, and it worked out for them. Um, however, we just mentioned they got like 19 guys in this current recruiting class, but you know, he was also the type of transfers he was pulling in were, you know, Caleb, there, Caleb Williams isn't transferring anywhere this off season, or at least we don't know a future Heisman candidate, but I think it really probably just depends on the situation that you're in Georgia, for instance, last year, didn't take a single transfer at all. Right. So, um, where the years past, they took guys like, you know, JT Daniels. So, I think it really just depends where you're at as a, as a program. I think what most programs seem to be doing, I think they treat it like free agency in football. You still want to build like in, in yeah. the pros, you still want to build majority of your team, like 80 to 85% through the draft, get young developing players, have them in your system. And then where you need to fix spots for that year or the next year, where maybe you have depth issues, then you go into the portal as you would for free agency um, but like we said, I think with teams with big holes or teams that want to rebuild right away, they're using it to their advantage. I don't know. I think it's just fascinating because, you know, we were talking about it, about NIL and that's impact on maybe new teams, uh, becoming in, in the playoff, but it's just, that's only been around for a couple of years. I still don't think we've seen which way is either the best way, or if it's a mixture between the two, like we're kind of experimenting as we go with this roster construction. So I think that's kind of the, the interesting part um, about the whole thing. And I think coaches are really trying to adjust in real time. You know, I think the portal is helpful to them because 
from what I have read and what I have kind of gathered, like the top kids are always going to be still in the, in the mix to sign, but you know, you might take a look at the last four to five kids you have ranked in your class and be like, all right, would I rather have four or five of those kind of, you know, spots or would I rather give those spots to guys I've seen play college football before? Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I think you're totally right when it's like, where's the coach at? Do you need to win this year? Are you on the hot seat? Did you just have a down year? Um, if you're a new coach, right? I mean, we were just talking before we hit record about all the transfers Arizona State's taking. Well, they have like nine or ten already. And like we still have, you know, a month or five or six weeks until uh, you'll start to see it kind of slow down. I think ASU is going to take maybe two dozen transfers because they have – I mean, I just looked at their – I looked at their class, Lucas. Do you know what where ASU is ranked right now? Uh, you have to hit I, the load more. I, I know. I think they're twice. like – Hey, it's, it's the same with Wisconsin too. So I feel your pain. I bet they're are they like 56. are they in the seventies? They're one hundred and one. One hundred and one. Okay. <laughs> you have to hit load more twice. They're they're rating right between Troy and UAB. Uh, All right. right now for, uh, ASU will be a really competitive Sun Belt team next year. <laughs> um, now they only have seven commits, right? And I think in twenty twenty, the class of twenty two, they only signed I think a dozen or so high school players. They really did not. Um, they really did not uh, use high school recruiting to their advantage. They focused a lot on the portal, and some of that was the um, scandal and the, the violations and such. But, like, ASU needs players. Like, they need bodies. And if you, you know, if you bring in 16 players, for example, in a recruiting class and eight of those guys transfer by their third year, you don't have a very big junior class. You don't have a big no. sophomore class. So your roster is, like, you know, 45 freshmen and redshirt freshmen, and then, like, 35 you know seniors that have stayed four years it's it's very tricky for coaches and i i can't imagine what it's like for them in the month of december to be doing the high school recruiting the portal recruiting and then recruiting their own players mm -hmm. i mean it's just it's baffling to me that all of this comes together and we just haven't really changed anything in three years right no um if it were me, I would have the early signing period be in August or September. And I would have the regular signing period in February. That's how the other sports do it. Men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball. Their signing day is in November, and then their other one is in April. Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense to just do one in December and then one in February. You just moved it up yeah. six weeks. Oh, and by the way, the portal opens in early December. Oh, and by the way, half your roster might look to transfer. Like, good luck. Also, why is the why is the portal window like forty five days? Like why? So they 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 changed that this year, right? Um, they they passed the rule in August. Uh, I read an athletic article about this, where the basically the coaches were like, "Hey, right now any kid can enter the portal whenever he wants," and that is really challenging for us to be like, "Hey, a kid doesn't like his playing time. All right, screw you. I'm going. I'm going to go in the portal in the month of October." So by, by giving it windows, there's two windows. You can enter it after the season from December until January, uh, January like 15th or 19th, something like that. And then again, after spring ball for, I think, 15 or 30 days. I, I, I'm guessing it's just trying to add a little bit more guardrails or a little bit more structure to it. But the result is a thousand kids have entered their name in the portal in the first like week and a half. And coaches are like, oh, crap. I had to sort through all of these kids to see if I can find anyone usable. Mm -hmm. No, it's no. And I get, I like the idea of the windows. My thing is just 
because you can still you just have to be in the portal you can still transfer Correct. like even if like in january if you haven't gotten a place you can still go somewhere in march or april um yeah. if you want to i just i just don't i mean do you really need 45 days to think because we i feel like we see most of these kids leave within what the first week first two weeks usually um i don't know why it needs to be carried out but no i i completely get like you're getting hit at like all sides at once especially if you're a new head coach taking over a new team like i mean you basically we see it almost every year now where that coach basically has usually 10 to 15 guys that are just gone just for the fact that they have a new coach um so yeah i I'm surprised. I mean, it's the NCAA. They just announced a new president, by the way. Former uh, Massachusetts governor Charlie Baker is going to be taking saw over. That. Saw that. <laughs> and, uh, I saw, Good luck, Charlie. I saw a tweet there like, yeah, you know, Mark Emmert set the bar so low for competence that uh, Charlie Baker probably will have the easiest job uh, in the world because yeah. it probably can't get much worse. But anyways, um, I think it's better they have windows now, but I think it, they still can tighten it up and, and manage it. Uh, much much better than how it's going because, like I'm I'm fearful. We just ha- sadly we saw Mac- Mike Leach pass away. And I just think we're going to see like I just don't think this is sustainable for coaches as a it's lifestyle not. for them to do this. And I think we're going to see more and more retire when they're in their mid fifties or after just a handful of years because they're just like I can't do this anymore. Um, it's just too much, and I don't want that to happen. When real, I think this is very preventable from doing that. It, it, it seems to me like, again, an easy fix, right? You put a, an early signing period in the fall. You do the same one in February. December, I, I think, should just be about portal kids. Like, make it a dead period for high school. Just recruit your current roster. Recruit the portal. Focus on that. And that way, when you get to January, when you, maybe I would, I would open things up in January, right? Do, mm-hmm. do, do visits. Let the coaches on the road. But you the, the coaches – can know how many scholarships they have left, who on their current team left. Um, you can kind of know what holes you have to fill, who declared for the draft. Like, it just feels like, and I was reading an article, The Athletics just dropped a really good, like, portal, like, update, and they were talking to Tony Grimes' dad, Tony Grimes, former five-star cornerback from Notre, uh, North Carolina, um, and he was like, we basically have 10 days to make a decision. Like, mm-hmm. we entered in in early December and like the dead periods, December 19th, we have, we basically have two or three visit weekends to fit in all of these visits to figure out where am I going to spend the next one or two years, which, Oh, by the way, could be the most important years. Your, your, you know, junior, your senior year, your money-making years, Yeah, you know? And it's, it's, I think it's a disservice to everyone. It's a disservice to the kids. It's, it's a disservice to the coaches. It's a disservice to the high school um, players. It's it's frustrating that we have this, but it's it's just part of college football. They move at a snail's pace. Yeah, and, and it's and it's brutal, like you mentioned, for players like that, because especially for transfers, you more than likely want to get to your next school as soon as possible, um, and you want to be there the next semester so you can participate in spring ball, get acclimated, yeah. everything like that. So yeah, you really are on a are on a tight schedule. But I also think. On the flip side, like that's also the risk that you take on the transfer side um, if you do do that. Um, 
especially with how how late it has become. But I agree with you with the early signing period. We could push it back. Most kids are committed and know where they want to go before their yeah. senior year. Because um, yep. I love that you know kids can now take officials during the summer. I think that helps out, especially northern schools. But it also just helps out you know kids who want to commit and get that that weight off their chest by the time. And like you mentioned, if there is a coaching change and stuff like that, they can get out of their letter in, of intent and then they can sign in February then yep. if they want to. And then you can keep that December period for those early enrollees. Cause that's what it was before. If you were before they moved that to national signing day, this date was there because this was for people who wanted to sign early so that they could early enrollee um, for the spring semester and for JUCO transfer. That's basically what this period was for yeah. originally. You could just move it back to that and yeah, and have a signing period right at the end of the summer and then one at February if they want to wait that long. Um, I completely agree. It'll be interesting. We'll, uh, we'll do a little signing day recap maybe next week or we do it to our shows in uh, early January as well. It'll be interesting. A couple uh, big uncommitted prospects, but mostly everyone in the top 50, top 100 are uh, committed, mm-hmm. uh, including some big time quarterbacks which we'll talk about here at a later date all right um we're going to wrap up the show by doing a little look back a look back at our uh, at the pack 12 um the pack 12 i have been contending all season best conference in america this year finished with six of the top 18 teams in the final college football playoff rankings seven teams make a uh, a bowl game this year i'll just run down the conference um uh, the conference standings quickly. And then Lucas and I will give some superlatives for biggest uh, surprise, biggest disappointment, so on and so forth. Um, this is regular season conference standings. USC 11 and two, eight and one in the conference, Washington 10 and two, seven and two in the conference, Oregon nine and three, seven and two in the conference, Utah 10 and three, seven and two in the conference, Utah, your PAC 12 champions for a second straight year. Oregon State nine and three, six and three in the conference. UCLA nine and three as well. Uh, Washington State seven and five, four and five conference record. The Arizona Wildcats second year under Judge Fish barely miss a bowl game. They go five and seven. Cal at four and eight. ASU and Stanford at three and nine. And Colorado at one and eleven. Lucas, quickly let's go back. I have our preseason predictions here. Oh boy, um, we actually didn't do too bad. You had Utah versus USC in the conference championship game with Utah winning. I had Utah and UCLA with Utah winning as well. Um, some interesting things to look back on. So obviously we did the over-unders uh, for each team's win total. So we both had under 8.5 for Oregon, wrong. Under 7.5 for Washington, wrong. We were both pretty high in Oregon State. Both had their over at 5.5. Both took the under on Cal 5.5, which was uh, correct. Both took Washington State's over five and a half and Stanford's under four and a half. So overall, pretty good. Mm-hmm. South, I took USC under nine and a half. You took their over. We both took over eight and a half wins for Utah in the regular season. And we both took the over eight and a half for UCLA, which hit as well. Both took the under for Arizona State and Colorado, set at five and a half and three and a half, respectively. And then took the over on Arizona. So overall, I thought we, yeah, kind of we had actually it. did really, really well. In the we did really well. <laughs> you know, like we, we actually did really well. We'll we'll go over our our season long our season over unders that we kind of locked up 
at the end of this uh, at the end of this kind of review season. But we 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 did pretty well, uh, Lucas. Before we get into superlatives, kind of your overall thoughts on the Pac-12 as a whole in 2022. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it um, numerous times, but I think this was. I know the Pac-12 did not get a team in the playoff. However, I think respect has been restored to the Pac-12. I think that will pay dividends next year. We'll see what happens when USC and UCLA leave in two years. However, I think the the conference is in great shape. And I think both of us were a lot more high on the conference coming in uh, before, uh, before the season had started. We both thought USC, UCLA, and Utah were going to be good. But then we also saw Oregon, I thought, was much better than expected. Washington was much better than expected under their first-year head coach. Oregon State surprised a lot of people. And the bottom kind of stayed what we thought. And um, overall, I thought it was a great uh, great year for the conference, uh, at least on the field. I still think there's a lot of off-the-field issues still going on with the Pac-12. Um, however, on the field, besides not, besides getting uh, not getting a team into the postseason, I think it was a, a home-run season overall for the league. I agree. I mean, it's 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 interesting because the league was very top heavy. You had six teams win nine games or more, which is which is pretty remarkable. Um, and you had three teams win three games or fewer. So you had, I think, really good parity at the top, but the bottom of the league with Colorado going one and eleven, with Stanford going three and nine, and Arizona State going three and nine. You can kind of tell where those wins came from, right? A lot of those 9-10 win teams were able to beat up on the bottom of the league. Not a ton in the middle class, right? I mean, you had Washington State 7-5, and five, Arizona and Cal. Arizona 5-7 and seven, and Cal uh, at 4-8. and eight. So, all right, let's start with our superlatives. We are going to uh, give a couple superlatives out here. We're going to go uh, biggest surprise team, biggest disappointing team. Which coach did the best coaching job? And then a quick look ahead to the uh, to 2023 kind of team that most intrigues you heading into the offseason. So, Lucas, I'll start with you. Let's go with biggest surprise for you. Biggest positive surprise team in the Pac-12 was? So, I'm going to go with a team that I actually thought was going to be pretty good. However, I thought their schedule was brutal, so I wasn't sure how they were going to go. And I'm going to go with Oregon State. I think... A really nice nine-win season under uh, under Jonathan Smith, who I think has done a terrific job rebuilding that program. He even capped it off with a win uh, in the Civil War, knocking out their arch rival Oregon out of the Pac-12 title game, uh, and then they actually play this weekend against Florida. But I think just a terrific job. And uh, overall, you I mean you look at them; they didn't have the greatest passing attack uh, in the Pac-12. However, they had. You know, a three-headed monster at running back with with Damian Martinez, who was one of the better uh, Pac-12 freshmen, rushing for almost a thousand yards in his freshman year. And you still you paired that with you know Deshaun Fenwick uh, and also Jam Griffin. Uh, I mean, I think they only threw it like 13 times against Oregon and still were able to put up like 34 points uh, or whatever amount that they put in to win that game. So I'm gonna go with that. I mean, you looked at their beginning of their schedule; they had to. Two really tough non-conference games in both Boise State uh, and Fresno State. Uh, they also had to play, we mentioned Oregon, um, and they had USC and Utah. That was all within their first four games, first five games. 
Uh, they had to play Boise State, Fresno State, USC, Utah. Started off two and two, and then won uh, six out of their out of their last seven. So I'm going to give it to them. I thought it was a huge elevation year for them, and I'm excited for what they do next year. I think they return a decent amount of guys. I'm assuming this could be a place where if they could get a pretty good transfer quarterback, um, I think this could be a team that could surprise people again next year uh, in the Pac-12 as well. Yeah, you look at Oregon State. um, They went undefeated in the non-conference. They beat Boise and Fresno, who then ended up playing for the Mountain West Championship Mm -hmm. and both finished with nine wins themselves. Like That's a pretty darn good accomplishment. And they have a win over over uh, over Oregon as well, like you said, in the Civil War. Jonathan Smith, crazy to say, he's already been there five years. Um, two and ten in 2018, five and seven in 2019. The COVID year, they went two and five, seven and six, and nine and three. I mean, you talk about a slow, steady turnaround um, for what was you know one of the worst programs in the conference. Oregon State was a doormat mm-hmm. um, for basically when Mike Riley left to go to Nebraska, which seems like it was forever ago. So I agree. I went with a, a different Pac-12 North team. I went with I went with Washington and Kalen DeBoer. Um, Washington was a complete mess the last couple of seasons. Um, Chris Peterson leaves that job to Jimmy Lake. Um, they were not a good football team uh, in 2021, and they were just dreadful to watch. They lost to Montana week one. Um, they couldn't score. Uh, it was a bad, just bad vibes with that program. And Kalen DeBoer comes in, they go 10-2 and two in, 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 in year one. You have a win over Michigan State in the non-conference. You go 3-0 and in, in the non-con. Um, your only losses were at UCLA by eight points, at Arizona State by seven points. You beat Oregon State. You beat Oregon. You win the Apple Cup. Like, a really nice first year for Kalen DeBoer. And turns Michael Penix into one of the best quarterbacks in the country. I mean, Bo Nix got a lot of the transfer pub as the best transfer kind of in the Pac-12. Michael Penix was was leading the nation in passing for most, if not all, of the 2022 season. He was awesome. They scored a ton of points. It was fun football. Um, I was surprised. Uh, I read you that we both had their under seven and a half wins. Listen, I thought this would be a six and six or seven and five team. Like I, I, I thought this would be a, a bowl team. Penix would be have some nice games. Maybe they, they, you know, get an upset. Maybe they win the Apple Cup. But to, to, to win ten games, I know you didn't have to play Utah. You didn't have to play USC in the regular season. That's a benefit for them. But impressive first season for me for Kalen DeBoer and the Washington Huskies. And I think the the biggest thing on top of that with Kalen DeBoer, this offense was part of my friends was complete dog shit a season ago yeah. like in the bottom like bottom like in the mid 100s when it came to, to total passing and just a complete 180 they had two 1000 yard receivers michael Penix threw for over 4300 yards probably and he just said he was coming back next year could be a, a yep. he's going to be a heisman candidate going into next season i just think it, it was a complete 180 and you know kalen DeBoer. Um, I think could be you give him a little bit of time. He gets his own guys in there. I think it could be really something fun to watch in in Washington here for the next few years as well. All right, let's go to biggest disappointment. Uh, a couple teams stand out. I will let you go first. Your your biggest team disappointment uh, in the Pac twelve. I'm gonna go. So 
this one's kind of hard because the teams that were bad in the Pac-12, I kind of anticipated to right. be bad. Um, but I'm going to go with just Stanford, um, just largely because just how much that program has fallen off. Uh, you know, years ago we were talking about David Shaw as one of the best uh, pro, one of the best coaches in the country. Stanford was one of the most consistent and just well coached on both sides of the ball um, in the entire U.S. And you know, three and nine. Obviously, David Shaw is now out. Uh, they just uh, they just hired a new head coach, but they were just abysmal like this whole year. Only one Pac-12 win. I think they only had one win against an FBS or Power Five opponent all season. And for me, I think it's just disappointing because I think Stanford was a tough job. I think it's getting even more harder now because with the transfer portal, they can't really bring a bunch of transfers in. They also, because of the COVID year, they had to let a lot of guys go because they couldn't get them into the grad programs to stay on the roster longer. And you're always going to be kind of going at a negative with guys transferring out. So I'm just going with them. Their defense was abysmal once again, and they've just fallen. They're not physical anymore. Like it's just kind of sad to see the state where Stanford is. And look, I don't want to blame COVID on still teams, but I think COVID really hit hard. And with Cal too, I think they're still really recovering from the sanctions and and everything like that. So I'm going to go with Stanford just because I thought they'd at least play with a little bit more of a pulse this year. And it just, it just wasn't there. Yeah. And, and you look at Stanford, um, I mean, 18-point loss to Washington, 18-point loss to Oregon, 13-point loss to USC. They get drubbed 38-13 at UCLA, 52-14 to Washington State, 42-7 to Utah. I mean, just not competitive. Not competitive in these games. Um, For me, it really came down to uh, Stanford and Cal. And I'll just touch on Cal here as you you, kind of touched on Stanford. It's been an interesting tenure for Justin Wilcox. Cal was the first team that came to my mind because I don't recall Cal being relevant at all during the season. Like I remember watching a Cal, like the Cal's the biggest moment of Cal season was when Stanford kicked a field goal. I don't want to bring up old wounds, buddy. When Stanford kicked that field goal to hit the over and like they're celebrating and Cal's celebrating. Yeah. Lucas is grabbing his and I'm so sorry. But like that to me is the only thing relevant of Cal's season. They went four and eight. They went five and seven in 2021. Here's Justin Wilcox's tenure. Um, he's in his sixth season. He's going the opposite way of Jonathan Smith. Five and seven in 2017. Seven and six with a bowl loss in 2018. Eight and five in 2019 with a win over Illinois in the Red Box Bowl. One and three in the COVID season, and then five and seven and four and eight. They went two and seven in conference this year, and. Not, I mean, some of them were competitive, right? You lost to Colorado by seven on the road. You lost to, uh, you, 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 you kept it competitive against UCLA or uh, against USC in the Coliseum, only losing by six. But I mean, here, here were Cal's four wins UC Davis, UNLV, Arizona, and Stanford. Three, uh, you know, three teams that didn't go to a bowl game and an FCS team. I mean, just, and Justin Wilcox signed a contract extension. And Justin Wilcox somehow flirted with Oregon last offseason. Apparently turned it down. Yeah, apparently turned down Oregon. Um, it just, I mean, I, I feel like it's a program that 
is just kind of not going anywhere. It doesn't really have any juice. I think the COVID stuff in the Bay Area still, like, I think that's very true. Like, I still think it was, it was, uh, it, it's, we're still f- uh, feeling the effects of that. But I just, I just, Cal's is going nowhere to me. No, no juice in that program. No, and you just wonder, like, what, I think there's always been questions with Cal on how much they really emphasize or really want to push in sports. They recently, I know a big reason why Sonny Dykes left or wanted to get out a few years ago was they upped the uh, enrollment standards for athletes. So you can't really recruit, even though you're in a hotbed in California and you're the flagship school, it can be hard to get certain players in there. And yeah, like you mentioned, there's just no momentum. They were showing that game against Stanford, like a big rivalry game. It looked like half the stadium was empty. And, you know, you look at all the good players that they've turned out over the years, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Hassan Jackson, Marshawn Lynch. They at one point Cal had like the fifth most players in the NFL to where it is now. Um, And I like Justin Wilcox. I thought he was starting to turn that program around. Like you mentioned COVID, but it just for something isn't working. I think this, I mean, this is obviously a huge year. I think he's on the hot seat there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think expectations are high at Cal, but like you mentioned, they just got to get something moving in some direction. Cause it just feels like they're just stuck in the mud. Literally. Literally. All right. Let's go to best coaching job. I'll go first on this one. Um, I'm going to say Lincoln Riley. Um, Lincoln Riley came over from Oklahoma, a lot of fanfare in year one, brought in a lot of transfers. And I remember sitting here in July and just being like, it could work. And they could go eleven and one or twelve and zero, or it could be eight and four, nine and three, and we just don't know, right? I mean, you remember Caleb Williams at the end of his Oklahoma tenure, kind of struggling in some games, right? Struggled at Baylor, didn't play lights out down the stretch in his freshman season in twenty twenty one, and Lincoln Riley comes to USC and just sets the world on fire. I mean, Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, yes, it's his what third Heisman Trophy winning quarterback in like the last five six years. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. They go 11-1 and one in the regular season. Their only loss is uh, on the road by one point on a failed two-point conversion to Utah. Wins over UCLA on the road, a win against Notre Dame at home. Um, you won at Oregon State, a win that looked really good towards the end of the season as well. Um, I thought Lincoln did a great job and really solidified USC as like being back. Like I think USC is back as being a – I would, I would say a West Coast power. I guess they still would be in the Big Ten, but just it feels like this is a program that is is going to be on the national stage for a long time. I mean, to go 11-1 and one in year one and knock on the door of the college football playoff, yeah, the game against Utah in Vegas was ugly. Um, you got outscored like 44-7 to seven after being up 17-3. You clearly looked out physical and Utah was missing their best running back and a couple other key contributors. That being said, really successful first year for Lincoln Riley to bring all of those players together. We saw Mario Cristobal go 6-6 six and six in year one. We saw Billy Napier go 6-6 six and six in year one. Uh, Brian Kelly had a nice year, but like I really think Lincoln Riley did a really nice job bringing it all together, coaching Caleb Williams. So he gets my best coaching job. Yeah, I... I agree with you. Um, 
I didn't choose Ling and Rai, but I agree with the points that you were making. And, you know, we both, I think we both said, you know, nine and three, 10 and two was kind of our optimistic view. Um, I wasn't trying to buy into the USC hype train to the playoff. I was just like, it's year one. They're bringing in all these new guys. How is everything going to mesh? But it was a, it was a fantastic uh, job. And you mentioned, yeah, I think USC feels like they're like back. We'll see how they, I, they, they still have work on the defensive side of the ball, but I feel like as long as Lincoln Riley's there, they're going to be competing for national titles year in and year out. You know you're going to get great quarterback play. This was his third Heisman Trophy quarterback that he's coached. In like six years? In like six years, yes. Um, it's just ridiculous how good he is at developing quarterbacks. And like I said, he's at Oklahoma. He's probably going to get – he was getting the number one QB every year. I don't think that's going to be any different at USC. Quarterbacks are going to want to play in his system. Um, so I think as long as you have that, you're always going to be competitive, mix in all the athletes that they're going to be able to, to get and have been getting for years. I think it's just, it's just a great combination. So I'm stoked if you're a USC fan, I don't think it's going to really change when they go to the big 10. It could in fact, maybe help them because maybe some players playing in the big 10, maybe outside of California, they're trying to get bigger recruits might be an easier, uh, uh, an easier sell to play in the Big Ten versus playing in the Pac-12, though that could be neg- negligible. But, um, no, I think just a terrific coaching job for him. I mean, USC might be the most hyped team coming into next year, um, which I feel like as an ASU fan might be <laughs> might be dreadful to, to hear all that. But uh, for the no, course. I think it was a really good job. I went with, however, I went with the team you picked as the most surprising. I went with Kalen DeBoer. Um, just for some of the things I mentioned before, how he turned what was one of the worst offenses in football to one of the most explosive. And um, to kind of go on to our next question, they're the team that I am looking forward the most to next year. I think a lot of people are going to be looking forward to USC, but Michael Penix is back. I mentioned they had two 1,000-yard receivers, both of which are going to be coming back. Um, and I'm trying to remember their names in Rome, uh, Adunza. Um, as well as who's their other, other uh, it's escaping uh, me as well. It's escaping my mind, but I had it up here and then my computer just froze. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think with, with that combination with those guys, another year in that system, another recruiting class coming in. Um, I think Washington on the other side of the pac 12, um, I know we're not doing divisions, but they might be, um, depending on where, what Oregon does. And obviously Utah is probably going to be in the mix as well. But I think Washington could be that second team behind USC next season. So, All right. So let's let's wrap this up by team we're most intrigued by in the offseason. Did you say Colorado? With, I think that's, that, that's just not in the Pac-12. We could say that just nationally. I think Right. I mean, I, it feels like, like – I mean, I was trying to find a different answer. I'm like, well – you know, USC is bringing back Caleb Williams and how do they replace Jordan Addison? But like, I think it's Colorado. I mean, what does this roster look like in 2023? Um, how many transfers does Dion get? Are there any last second, like major flips? Remember he flipped Travis Hunter on signing day last year to go to Jackson state. Is Travis Hunter going to commit to Colorado and, and enter the transfer portal? I don't believe he has as of now. Um, you know, I am not a big Dion guy, but I cannot deny that all of our eyes will be on him for the next handful of months, right? 
Yeah. I'm guessing the Colorado spring game will be on ESPN or whatever platform they want it to be on. And um, that program will get a lot of attention and a lot of eyes and a little bit like we said with Lincoln Riley last year, right? What does year one look like? How quickly does he turn it around? Lincoln Riley turned it around pretty quickly. Now I think Caleb Williams is a big part of that. We'll see if Shudder standards, uh, Shudder Sanders is near that level. But I, I think Colorado has to be the pick for a program we're kind of most intrigued by uh, heading into the offseason. Yeah, it's unprecedented. Just, I mean, I was listening to the Cover 3 podcast, and they had – it was a former Colorado player. I can't remember the name, but he was basically like, our kind of our expectation is that we're going to go from the worst to be the least at minimum a bowl team next year with the amount of talent that they're bringing in. I think in past years, this would be, like we mentioned, kind of the old-fashioned, probably by, what, year two, year three, Right, you're starting to see where this would be a year zero situation with a program like this. It's not going to be the case with Dion. I'm interested to see the type of poll he has um, in Colorado. It hasn't been a recruiting hotspot over the last how many years? Um, but and also the, the amount of transfers he brings in. We know he told you know half his damn team to not even – bother coming back to enter the transfer portal. Yeah. Um, so that's always going to be a focus. I, I sure as hell know uh, Pac-12 Network is probably not going to have many Colorado games as they're probably used to this year. Yeah. So, um, but uh, no, I think they're probably the most intriguing team in the country, which I can't remember the last time you could say that with a straight face about Colorado, like 1998, yeah. 1997, I mean, literally. Like the other team I'll, I'll say quickly is just the Arizona Wildcats, Jed Fish in year two, um, five and seven, um, a good trajectory for them. I will say um, the recruiting class last year was top 25. It's currently number 49. Um, they have lost some transfers. Um, I don't know if, if uh, the juice is still flowing there at Jed Fish with, with, with Arizona. I do feel like a bowl – in year three is what you have to get to when you look at their schedule. The non-conference is Northern Arizona and UTEP at home and at Mississippi State. Uh, the teams from the north that they will miss, uh, they will not play. It looks like Oregon and Cal from the north. So interested to see what Arizona looks like in Jed Fish's third year. I think that's a program that is um, that is improving, but we'll see what jump they take in year three because I think to improve, to, to um, keep up the momentum, you got to get to a bowl game. Yeah, uh, agreed. Especially the way they kind of ended the year with um, with some decent wins. Um, beat Arizona uh, State. Yeah, beat Arizona State, won the Territorial Cup. Um, was that the first time in a few years that they had won it? I want to say since 2015 or 16. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we know they pulled, they pulled like a top 20 recruiting class last year. Uh, I remember, but yeah, I agree. I think that's kind of the, I feel like that we were just talking about the old fashioned kind of three-year plan. I think it's year zero. You show that you're uh, getting more competitive by year two. And then year three, I think you need to have results like a bull win. So it'll be interesting to see with them with not maybe more pressure, but more expectations on them where this year, I don't think we really had any expectations. Like, yeah, we just want to see them, their young players develop see if they are competitive by the end of the year with, um, but I think especially with Jaden Delora coming back, um, I think that's a team that should be bowling next year. Um, if I would agree. In the right direction. 
would agree. All right, buddy, that's going to wrap it up for uh, for tonight. Any final thoughts here before we sign up? Yeah, um, for all those, want to appreciate all of our listeners through the whole year. Um, just found out our last two episodes, the most listened to in-season episodes yep. we have done. So really appreciate um, everyone that does. Me and Ryan love doing these pods once a week, and that just gives us even more um, more gratitude and even more motivation to, to keep bringing out content for y'all. Um, just make sure to follow us at Running for the Roses on Twitter. Please yep. subscribe. Um, or please uh, hit the subscribe button on Spotify. All those are wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah, follow us on Twitter. And uh, yeah, if we don't see you before, happy uh, happy holidays. What about yourself, Ryan? Any? No, just thoughts? echoing some of the, some of the same thoughts, man. Love love doing this. Love that we were we basically did it every, every week during the season. I think mm-hmm. we'll start to kind of space them out a little bit as we get to the off season. Although, I think twice a month could be a, a reasonable expectation for us. Um, starting in, in, in January, but genuinely one of my favorite times of the week is sitting down chatting college football for Same. 60 or, or 90 minutes with you really, really enjoy it. So it, thank you to everyone or, or two listening. hours like it is in the summer or two hours when we're talking about 14 <laughs> teams in the sec and it's like 10 minutes on each team. We're like, Oh my gosh, how much on Ole Miss do we have now? Okay, here we go. You know, but I can talk about it for hours, man. I can talk about it for hours. Same. I Same. love this stuff and uh, the off season is is in some ways more intriguing than the regular season we have a lot of stuff we'll get to next week hopefully we can sit down and record next week i don't know what your travel schedule is if you're going back to madison but i i might have a few days before christmas but we will see lots to get to as always for lucas roadie i'm ryan baffle lucas have a great night everyone happy holidays stay frosty